So dissonance is a musical term. It has to do with a lack of harmony between notes. Between notes. So let's see if this thing works here. So this is actually a really important chord here. It's called the 5-7 chord. And what it is, it's a 7 chord built on top of the 5th note of the scale. And it's used in music to make you want to hear something else. And that's the truth. What happens is, you have all this melodious stuff going on. And then, and it resolves. And so in the in other, I actually have a student that I teach. I teach piano lessons. And so every time that she plays, she's like, you know, she's playing a song and then she gets it and she goes, and she giggles like every time. There's something in her that recognizes this, this doesn't fit. These two things, they don't, they don't like flow together. There's a, and the word is dissonance. There's a, a, a lack of harmony between those things. And in the major scale, which is, you know, sound of music, do, re, mi, fa, right? I'm not a vocalist, but... So there's this note. And how would you like it if I just ended the song on the... And it's just over, right? You know, there's this... It's called the leading tone. And in the major scale, you have the seventh note of the scale, and it, and it leads you. And the dissonance of that note leads you to want something to be resolved and maybe by the end of the morning i'll resolve that for you so i want to start off with a quote this morning and it's from uh john piper and he suggests i don't really believe it's possible to grasp the central drama of the bible until we begin to feel this tension until the coming of jesus christ the bible is like a piece of music whose dissonance begs for some, some final resolution into harmony. Redemptive history is like a symphony with two great themes of God's... In, okay, a symphony with two great themes. The theme of God's compassion to promote His glory and the theme of God's inscrutable electing love of sinners who have scorned that very glory. Again and again, all through the Bible, these two great themes carry along the symphony of history. They interweave and in, interpenetrate, and we know, just like that was what you're talking about, they interweave, they, they cross, and we know that some awesome composer is at work here, but for centuries, we don't hear the resolution. The harmony always escapes us, and we have to wait. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the resolution of the symphony of history. In the death of Jesus, the two themes of God's love for His glory and His love for sinners are resolved. As in all good symphonies, there had been hints, there had been suggestions of the final resolution. That is what we have in Isaiah 53, 700 years before Jesus came. A hint, a hint of the resolve. A hint of the resolution. So I encourage you to, to pour over Isaiah 53. We're not going to go there necessarily this morning. 
This morning we are, though, we are going to look at the text itself, and we are going to be looking at what it is that the, the, the death of Jesus Christ, uh, the, the story itself, and then we're going to look at the significance of that story and, and how it brings resolution to what has been for centuries dissonant. So we're going to start in verse 26. So we're going to begin there. And it says, as they led him away. And so last week, if you were listening, we got all the way to the point where he had a trial before Herod and a trial before Pilate. And suddenly it's all been settled. And Pilate thinks he can just wash his hands of it and that he can just give in to the Jews and it's not going to be his fault. And and here, the very next thing, you, you have him being led away. As they led him away, they grabbed Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming in from the country. And they laid the cross on him to carry behind Jesus. A large crowd of people followed him, including people who were mourning and lamenting him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and your children. Look, the days are coming when they will say, the women without children, the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed are fortunate. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it's dry? There's some interesting things in there. Uh, The daughters of Jerusalem. Jesus greets them as the daughters of Jerusalem. And so you see that it's not the city dwellers. It's not, I mean, it's, it's the city dwellers that are that are gathered that he's addressing not the necessarily the Galileans right who came came down out of the uh, followed Jesus down from Galilee that's kind of interesting and, and and as he's walking to his execution he's thinking not necessarily of himself but he's warning the women don't don't weep for me don't grieve for me you should be grieving for yourselves and for for this city and what they're going to experience and what you're going to experience yes I'm dying but have you turned to Jesus? Have you understood what's really happening? It's interesting, uh, too. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it's dry? And that's like, you read other people's opinions, and they're like, oh, this one's difficult to uh, understand. I think what's kind of interesting, uh, and I could be wrong, but it's uh, so speculation, Princey. this is just speculation, but the word for wood is uh, xylon, uh, which is the same word that's translated cross uh, all over uh, in, the, in the New Testament. Um, there's one other word translated cross, and that's it's like sorrows or something like I'm not exactly sure how you say it. But, uh, so, I mean, that's another way that you could translate that word wood right there is it's been translated cross in your Bible many other times. And so it could, it could also be, if they do these things when the cross is green, what will happen when it's dry? And I, I kind of do think that it's an illusion to, if they can do this when, when Christ, when Jesus, when the Messiah is with them, then how bad is it going to get when, it's, when he's gone, when he's not there for them? At any rate, we're going to move on. Um, the next section is verses 20, 32 to 38, and we're going to read that. And you just see there's all these people who are encountering Jesus at the cross. 
episode after episode, and we could spend time diving into the hearts and the minds and the experience of all these people who were, who were there, who were watching this, the, the death of this, this man, Jesus. And what they think of it, what they think it means to them is subject to where they're at. They're all watching the same thing. And they're all processing it at their own, at their own rate. Two others, criminals, were also led away to be executed with him. And when they arrived at the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. And they divided his clothes and cast lots. The people stood watching and even the leaders kept scoffing. See all these different groups of people? You have criminals with them on the cross. You had all the daughters and the women following him. You had Simon carrying the cross. You have all these groups of people and they're all, they're all experiencing this together. And the soldiers dividing the clothes, casting lots. This crowd of people standing to watch. The leaders scoffing. He saved others. Let him save himself if it's God's Messiah, the chosen one. And the soldiers mocked him. And they came offering him sour wine and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. An inscription was above him. This is the king of the Jews. Verse 39. Then one of the criminals hanging in the tree there began to yell insults at him. You're the Messiah, save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him, don't you even fear God? Since you are undergoing the same punishment, we are punished justly because we're getting back what we deserve for the things that we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Jesus said, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. And I just think it's powerful to recognize that some, when they see Jesus on the cross, they understand. Somehow he, he saw the truth. Despite what everybody else was saying, he was able to... in some ways, reveal some, some powerful under, understanding, some things that not everybody seemed to understand, that Christ was going to come into his kingdom. As we move into the next section in chapter, uh, or verse 44, I'm struck with the unmistakable and the unavoidable reality of, of this sacrifice. It was about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three. Because the sun's light failed, the curtain of the sanctuary was split down the middle, and Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. Saying this, he breathed his last. When the centurion saw what had happened, he began to glorify God, saying, this man really was righteous. 
All the crowds that had gathered for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, they went home striking their chests. But all who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. I want to read something to you. It says, When the Father forsook the Son and handed Him over to the curse of the cross and lifted not a finger to spare Him pain, He had not ceased to love the Son. In that very moment, when the Son was taking upon Himself everything God hates in us, and God was forsaking Him to death, even then the Father knew that the measure of the Son's suffering was the depth of His Son's love for the Father's glory. And in that love, the Father took deepest pleasure. The crucifixion of Jesus was a mysterious event. In that hour, Jesus became a curse for us. That's what it says in Galatians 3, 13. It harkens back to something that's in Deuteronomy. Uh, I think it's in chapter 21 where it talks about anything that is hung on a tree to, to death is under a curse. And we know, in fact, that Jesus was willing to go outside of the camp to offer a sacrifice on the cross and there in Galatians 3, it describes he became a curse for us. But in the very moment when God's curse rested most heavily on Jesus because of sin, the Father's love for his Son reached explosive proportions. That is why Jesus, with his dying breath, could say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Though he knew the wrath of his father. He knew his wrath was being poured out on him. In that moment, the wrath of the father being poured out, he also knew that he was bearing it for the father's glory and that the father loved him for it. John 10, 17 says, For this reason the father loves me, Jesus said, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. And the Father rewarded the Son for the very suffering which was the Father's curse. We see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor because of His suffering of death. Hebrews 2.9 When Jesus died, He glorified the Father's name and saved His Father's people. And since the Father has overflowing pleasure in the honor of His name, and since He delights with unbounded joy in the election of a sinful people for Himself, how then shall He not delight in the bruising of His Son by which these two magnificent divine joys are reconciled and made one? Hmm. 
I wish I could blame it on the wind or something. What's funny is I really am confused. Oh. Well, we're going to move on to verse 50. It says in verse 50, there was a good and righteous man named Joseph, a member of the Sanhedrin, who had not agreed with their plan and action. Now this is interesting. So he must have not been there because it says in other passages, uh, other gospels, that it was a unanimous decision among the Sanhedrin. Maybe he wasn't there. Uh, But he didn't agree with their plan and action. He was from Arimathea, a Judean town, and he was looking forward to the kingdom of God. He approached Pilate, and asked for Jesus' body. Taking it down, he wrapped it in fine linen and placed it in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had been placed. It was preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed along and observed the tomb and how his body was placed. Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. It says in John 19 that Joseph of Arimathea, yeah, he asked Jesus for the body, and it says that Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. But with Pilate's permission, he came and he took the body away. We have another guy, and there's actually a group of men. It talks about Nicodemus. Nicodemus joined Joseph in helping to bury the body. Remember Nicodemus? He also came at night. He was curious. He felt the dissonance. He felt the disconnect. And he was trying to get it together. He was trying to understand. And so he came to Jesus. He says, how how is it? How can a man be saved? We know you must be from God. But the things you're saying, I'm not quite getting it. And so Jesus says, it's easy. Just be born again. Born again, what do, you, what do you mean? How can we be born again? And you have that in John 3. You have this exchange with Nicodemus. And then you have Joseph, a Sanhedrin, another religious leader, putting all these pieces together. But he's in hiding. But now it's public. Now everybody knows. Now everybody knows where he's at because he goes to Pilate, the governor, to get permission to take the body down. You know, it's kind of crazy when you look at the timeline of Jesus' death, this, this, the sequence of events, everything unfolded so quickly because it just seems like unreal, really, to go from where he was a week before to this moment in our story. And all these things had to happen in such a way to, and they fulfill so many beautiful prophecies. In fact, like Psalm 22, like if you look at what was written in Psalm 22 and you look at the words of Jesus, which Luke doesn't go into that detail. A lot of it's found in the other Gospels. Like when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the beginning of Psalm 22. And as you move through that, there's like, 12 different things that happen in the sequence of events on the cross or at the cross that fulfill 
this this psalm and it's it's simultaneously it's like wonderful and it's it's and it's terrible but somehow it's encouraging it's encouraging to know that this was all part of the plan god took pleasure in bruising his son because of the way that it was able to bring together things that didn't seem to fit. In fact, the rest of our morning together today, I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about the, the, the significance of his death on the cross and then begin to ask, like, what are we, we going to do with that? Like, what is it saying to us? All these people were seeing this, these events fold. And one criminal decided to ridicule Jesus and mock him and throw insults at him. And the other criminal on the cross decided to put his faith in Christ and pray that Jesus would save him. I mean, they had the same background. As far as we know, two criminals, they both were thieves, and they have a completely different response to the cross. So what hath God wrought? What hath God wrought? That, that's from uh, King James' uh, translation. Uh, and uh, we're going to look at what has God sought, and what has God bought, and what it is the death taught. And so if you were taking notes, uh, that's where we're going this morning. What hath God wrought in the death of his son? And so I think that we're going to carry over our answer from before. What is it that God was seeking? What is it that he's done what is it that he has sought? Number one is his pleasure and his glory. Because he brought together in the death of his son a reconciliation that I want to read to you. He, he reconciled, number one, uh, he reconciled man to God. And so Colossians 1, 20 to 22. And if you want to write that down, some beautiful passages that we're going to uncover, we're going to read through, and hopefully they will impress upon you the, 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 the message, the, the truth that God wants you to, I'm going to use the word swallow, that God wants you to swallow as it comes to you and as you approach the cross. Colossians 1, 20 to 22, And through him to reconcile everything to himself by making peace through the blood of his cross. Oh, they're out of order again. How does this happen? By making peace through the blood of his cross, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds because of your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. This is amazing that he can reconcile you to himself because of this. There's a reconciliation that needs to happen with God's own character, in a sense. So reconciling God's character with his character. Romans 3, 24, 25 says, They are justified freely by His grace. We are justified by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a propitiation through, through faith in His blood to demonstrate His righteousness because 
in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. How is it that God can simply allow you to like, exist in, in such a sinful state, knowing who he is and his holiness and separateness and mixed with his other things, like, like his righteousness and his wrath, his holiness, all those things. And as they come face to face with our ugliness, our, our, our way, we're, you know, our humanity and our proneness to, to sin, how do these things come together? And it talks about Jesus and his forbearance. He, he allowed all these sins that have not been Let's say he, he looked forward to the time where Jesus' death on the cross, the blood that he was willing to pour out on the cross, would be the atonement, the propitiation, which means the, satis, the satisfying of a, of a just wrath to assuage, in a sense, this, this justice that needs to be executed. And he, he waited accepting their faith before Christ was even uh, revealed, accepting their faith, looking forward to the, I guess you could say, the, the, the realization of, of this moment, this very moment here where the sins will have been paid for, where a death of a perfect lamb will be offered. So he had to bring, he had to reconcile his, his nature, his, his character. And Jesus was, and Jesus is offering here, his sacrifice was like the, 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 the linchpin where it all comes together. So there's reconciliation. What has God sought in the death of his son? He sought his glory and his pleasure through the, the reconciliation of man with God and God and his character so that he can be honored. So what has God bought in the death of his son? And I want to talk about the word redemption. Redemption. And this idea of, of a re, redemption is, is buying back, of restoring value. Restoring value to what has lost its value. In fact, I want to talk about we've been given a new identity through the cross. Revelation 5, 8 to 10. And when he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp and gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll to open its seals because you were slaughtered and you redeemed people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they will reign on the earth. A new identity. We've become a people. He's made us a people. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people because you've been brought in. You're invited into the family of God and into His service kingdom a kingdom of priests we have an opportunity now to to live for the king we've also been given through redemption new life 
And I'm not going to be able to read all the way through Hebrews um, chapter 9, but it talks about some awesome things. He entered the most holy place once for all, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. Because every year there was a high priest that he went and he did his thing and he brought in the blood and he, and, he, and he went all the way into the most holy place. But what Jesus did on the cross and what happened, the curtain, remember it said the curtain was torn into two? The curtain was torn into two and in the temple what you had is you had a curtain that kept you from going in and experiencing the ultimate glory of God. Because if you weren't completely right before the Lord going in there, and if you didn't have the blood of a perfect lamb sacrifice, then the glory of God just might smite you dead. In fact, if you were headed in there, they would just go ahead and put a rope around you so they could drag you out in case things didn't go well. And so this curtain was torn in two. And it's because Christ was able to bring in a sacrifice as the most high priest to offer a perfect sacrifice in the perfect tabernacle of a more perfect covenant with more perfect promises. And he was able to accomplish this on the cross with his sacrifice. So the last rhyming word with rot is taught. And so we've looked at what God has sought and what God has bought, and we will now look at what God has taught us through the death of His Son. And I want to talk about restoration. I want to talk about forgiveness. In Colossians 1, it talks about this. For, for this reason, Paul's writing to this church and he says, we haven't stopped praying for you. We're asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding so that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has enabled us to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. He's rescued us from the dominion of darkness and he's transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins in him. That's all from Colossians chapter 1, 9-14. This entire new way of living, all these things it talked about, growing in wisdom and, and understanding and walking worthy of the Lord and, and bearing fruit in every good work and having endurance and patience and joy and giving thanks and an inheritance, all these things that we've been transferred out of this kingdom of darkness and transferred into a kingdom of light and the Son He loves. And it's all because we have redemption. We've been bought back and we have the forgiveness of sins in Him. That's restoration. That's restoration. Restoring us into a right relationship with God. And that's what happened in the temple. Now, if you want access to the Father, it's through Jesus. He was the one. It was His sacrifice. He went into the temple. He's the one that tore that, 
that temple veil to invite us in to a relationship, to an understanding of the knowledge of God. He's invited us into a freedom. That's my last point. A restoration is not only brought back, brought us back through, through forgiveness, but also he's invited us and offered us a freedom. And this freedom, I have this thought that keeps coming back to me. I read it once, and there's this idea of, the, of, of, of freedom. Everybody wants freedom to make your own choices, to pursue your own life and pleasure. But this, this thought that's in my head is this idea of the freedom not to fall. And, and so this guy tells the story of two, two guys who jump out of an airplane. And, uh, and there they are. They're, they're free. They're free. They can do whatever they want. They're cruising down. Only one of them has a parachute, though. And suddenly the feeling of freedom changes because only one has the freedom not to fall. And I don't know if I'm able to connect all the dots, but, but the idea of what Christ has bought for us and what He's restored us to is a, is a way to... Is, is, is a power through His Holy Spirit in fact, it reminds me of Kurt's uh, verse that he really likes in Titus. And it talks about God's not given us a spirit of timidity, but one of power, power and a sound mind. There's one other word I'm missing. Power, love, and a sound mind. And uh, the, the power is that we have been liberated, we've been freed from sin. Romans 6 having been liberated from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. I'm using a human analogy because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you offered the parts of yourselves as slaves to moral impurity and to greater and greater lawlessness, so now offer them as slaves to righteousness, which results in sanctification. When you were slaves of sin, you were free from allegiance to righteousness. But what fruit was produced then when you were a slave to your flesh. What fruit was produced then from the things you are now ashamed of? For in the end, the end of those things is death. But now since you've been liberated from sin and have become enslaved to God, you have your fruit which results in sanctification and the end is eternal life. Well, I'd like to conclude our time here with just asking asking you, is there dissonance in your life? Is there a dissonance in your heart? Is there an unresolvedness when it comes to who you are and your freedom before God and your hope for what happens after this and your peace for what happens while you're living through this? And 
Paul said it this way. He said, when I preach Christ, I preach Christ crucified. I preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. See, the Jews demanded signs. They wanted to see amazing things. The Greeks, they were looking for wisdom. They wanted it to sound cool. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolish of God, foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. And so it is today. You see, the only way you're getting in to the Holy of Holies, the only way you're coming face to face with the, the living God and have any hope of not experiencing His wrath, the just punishment for your sins, it's through Christ. Through death. Buried with Christ and dead to your flesh. It's the only way you're getting in is through Christ. Through Christ and His death on the cross. Isn't there another way? You say, isn't there another way? I mean, didn't Jesus say, isn't there another way? He was there in the garden. He's, he's, God, is there another way? And Jesus says, and God's like, yeah, well, of course, there's option B. There's no option B. There's no option B. And Jesus said, well, in the end, it's your will that I want. I'm going to do it your way. No other way was provided. God has resolved the dissonance. And so the question is, how will you? Let me play that last note. I feel Dawn's presence, which means I need to be done. So we'll close in prayer. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for your, your goodness and your grace to us. It's amazing, Lord, and we want to, we want to, we want to be there long enough for us to be just reminded and impacted with the weight, the weight of it all, Lord. I pray that you would help us to be willing to gaze upon this moment and ponder all of its significance. I pray that you would touch us. In your name we pray, amen. So I hope that you have with you a um, communion uh, little packet. And so if you want to get that ready, and what we're going to do is we're going to um, take the, the bread and the cup, and these are remembrances of of Christ's death. And so it's a fitting time for you to, to reflect, to reflect on where you're at and how you view the cross and, and what it means to you. I felt as I've been reading this that there's such a, a pressure to, um, uh, there's such a weight of, of approaching the cross and, 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 and looking at it and then trying to 
to speak about it, and I've done a lot of reading, and it's been uh, encouraging, but also very, very heavy. And, and I just want you to know that he's, he's done this thing on the cross so that we could approach him with, with confidence. In fact, it talks about in, the, in, in Hebrews, it gives the imagery of the temple, and he says, like, come to the throne of grace in your time of need so that you can find mercy. He says, like, come in with boldness, but, but don't come in without the blood. And he's offered us his blood. Don't come in without Christ, because he's, he's let his flesh be torn for us. And it's through these very elements, this reminder of his death on the cross, that we have, we have received the restoration and the reconciliation, the redemption that our hearts have longed for. And so we just need to step into it. And we just need to approach him with faith and be grateful and humbled and let him work on you from the inside out. So we're going to do that. And I encourage you to take the bread and the cup during this time.